Chapter Eleven of the Seats of the Mighty by Gilbert Parker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. At last, I was roused by Gabo's voice. He sat down and drew the leaves of faded corn between his fingers. This a poor life. This is a cage, after all. Hey, dicky bud. If a soldier can't stand in the field fighting, if a man can't rub shoulders with man and pitch a tent of his own somewhere, why not go travelling with the beast? Oh, to have all the life sucked out like these, eh? To see the flesh melt and the air go white, the eye to be one hour bright like a fire in a kiln, and the next like mother on working vinegar. That's not living at all. No. The speech had evidently cost him much thinking, and when he ended, his cheeks puffed out and a soundless laugh seemed to gather, but it burst in a sort of sigh. I would have taken his hand at that moment, if I had not remembered when once he drew back from such demonstrations. I did not speak, but nodded assent, and took to drawing the leaves of corn between my fingers as he was doing. After a moment, cocking his head at me as might a surly schoolmaster in a pause of leniency, he added, As quiet, as quiet, and never did he fly at door of cage, nor peck at jailer. Aho! I looked at him a minute seriously, and then, feeling in my coat, handed to him the knife which I had secreted, with the words, Enough for packing with, eh? He looked at me so strangely, as he weighed the knife up and down in his hand, that I could not at first guess his thought. But presently I understood it, and I almost could have told what he would say. He opened the knife, felt the blade, measured it along his fingers, and then said, with a little bursting of the lips, Boom! But what would Mamselle have thought if Gabor was found dead with a hole in his neck, behind, eh? He had struck the very note that had sung in me when the temptation came. But he was gay at once again, and I said to him, What is the hour fixed? Seven o'clock, he answered. And I will bring your breakfast first. Good night, then, said I. Coffee and a little tobacco will be enough. When he was gone, I lay down on my bag of straw, which, never having been renewed, was now only full of worn chaff, and, gathering myself in my cloak, was soon in a dreamless sleep. I waked to the opening of the dungeon door to see Gabo entering with a torch and a tray that held my frugal breakfast. He had added some brandy also, of which I was glad, for it was bitter cold outside, as I discovered later. He was quiet, seeming often to wish to speak, but pausing before the act, never getting beyond a stumbling, Oho! I greeted him cheerfully enough. After making a little toilet, I drank my coffee with relish. At last I asked Gabo if no word had come to the citadel for me, and he said none at all nothing save a message from the governor before midnight ordering certain matters no more was said until turning to the door 
he told me he would return to fetch me forth in a few minutes but when halfway out he suddenly wheeled came back and blurted out if you and i could only fight it out monsieur tis ill for a gentleman and a soldier to die without thrust or parry gabo said i smiling at him you preach good sermons always and i never saw a man i'd rather fight and be killed by than you then with an attempt at rough humour i added but as i told you once the knot isn't at my throat and i'll tie another one yet elsewhere if god loves honest men i had no hope at all yet i felt i must say it he nodded but said nothing and presently i was alone i sat down on my straw couch and composed myself to think not upon my end for my mind was made up as to that but upon the girl who was so dear to me whose life had crept into mine and filled it making it of value in the world it must not be thought that i no longer had care for our cause for i would willingly have spent my life a hundred times for my country as my best friends will bear witness but there comes a time when a man has a right to set all else aside but his own personal love and welfare and to me the world was now bounded by just so much space as my dear alix might move in i fastened my thought upon her face as i had last seen it my eyes seemed to search for it also and to find it in the torch which stuck out softly sputtering from the wall i do not pretend even at this distance of time after having thought much over the thing to give any good reason for so sudden a change as took place in me there all at once a voice appeared to say to me when you are gone she will be doltaire's remember what she said she fears him he has a power over her now some will set it down to a low unmanly jealousy and suspicion it is hard to name it but i know that i was seized with a misery so deep that all my past sufferings and disappointments and even this present horror were shadowy beside it i pictured to myself alix in doltaire's arms after i had gone beyond human call it is strange how an idea will seize us and master us and an inconspicuous possibility suddenly stand out with huge distinctness all at once i felt in my head the ring of fire of which matilda had warned me a maddening heat filled my veins and that hateful picture grew more vivid things alix had said the night before flashed to my mind and i fancied that unknown to herself even he already had a substantial power over her he had deep determination the gracious subtlety which charms a woman and she hemmed in by his devices overcome by his pleadings attracted by his enviable personality would come at last to his will the evening before i had seen strong signs of the dramatic qualities of her nature she had the gift of imagination the epic spirit even three years previous i felt how she had seen every little incident of her daily life in a way which gave it vividness and distinction all things touched her with delicate emphasis were etched upon her brain or did not touch her at all she would love the picturesque in life 
though her own tastes were so simple and fine imagination would beset her path with dangers it would be to her with her beauty a fatal gift a danger to herself and others she would have power and feeling it womanlike would use it dissipating her emotions paying out the sweetness of her soul till one day a dramatic move a strong picturesque personality like doltaire's would catch her from the moorings of her truth and the end must be tragedy to her doltaire doltaire the name burnt into my brain some prescient quality in me awaked and i saw her the sacrifice of her imagination of the dramatic beauty of her nature my enemy her tyrant and destroyer he would leave nothing undone to achieve his end and do nothing that would not in the end poison her soul and turn her very glories into miseries how could she withstand the charm of his keen knowledge of the world the fascination of his temperament the alluring eloquence of his frank wickedness and i should rather a million times see her in her grave than pass through the atmosphere of his life this may seem madness selfish and small but after events went far to justify my fears and imaginings for behind there was a love an aching absorbing solicitude i cannot think that my anxiety was all vulgar smallness then i called him by coarse names as i tramped up and down my dungeon i cursed him impotent contempt was poured out on him in imagination i held him there before me and choked him till his eyes burst out and his body grew limp in my arms the ring of fire in my head scorched and narrowed till i could have shrieked in agony my breath came short and labored and my heart felt as though it were in a vice and being clamped to nothing for an instant also i broke out in wild bitterness against alix she had said she would save me and yet in an hour or less i should be dead she had come to me last night ah true but that was in keeping with her dramatic temperament it was the drama of it that had appealed to her and to-morrow she would forget me and sink her fresh spirit in the malarial shadows of doltaire's in my passion i thrust my hand into my waistcoat and unconsciously drew out something at first my only feeling was that my hand could clench it but slowly a knowledge of it travelled to my brain as if through clouds and vapours now i am no catholic i do not know that i am superstitious yet when i became conscious that the thing i held was the wooden cross that matilda had given me a weird feeling passed through me and there was an arrest of the passions of my mind and body a coolness passed over all my nerves and my brain got clear again the ring of fire loosing melting away it was a happy diverting influence which gave the mind rest for a moment till the better spirit the wiser feeling had a chance to reassert itself but then it seemed to me almost supernatural one can laugh when misery and danger are over and it would be easy to turn this matter into ridicule but from that hour to this the wooden cross which turned the flood of my feelings then into a saving channel has never left me i keep it not indeed for what it was but for what it did 
as i stood musing there came to my mind suddenly the words of a song which i had heard some voyagers sing on the st lawrence as i sat on the cliff a hundred feet above them and watched them drift down in the twilight brothers we go to the scarlet hills little gold sun come out of the dawn there we will meet in the cedar groves shining white dew come down there is a bed where you sleep so sound the little good folk of the hills will guard till the morning wakes and your love comes home fly away hot to the scarlet hills something in the half mystical half arcadian spirit of the word soothed me lightened my thoughts so that when presently gabo opened the door and entered with four soldiers i was calm enough for the great shift gabo did not speak but set about pinioning me himself i asked him if he could not let me go unpinioned for it was ignoble to go to one's death tide like a beast at first he shook his head but as if with a sudden impulse lie cast the ropes aside and helping me on with my cloak threw again over it a heavier cloak he had brought gave me a fur cap to wear and at last himself put on me a pair of woollen leggings which if they were no ornament and to be of but transitory use it seems strange to me then that one should be caring for a body so soon to be cut off from all feeling were most comforting when we came into the bitter steely air gabble might easily have given these last tasks to the soldiers but he was solicitous to perform them himself yet with surly brow and a rough accent he gave the word to go forward and in a moment we were marching through the passages up frosty steps in the stone corridors and on out of the citadel into the yard i remember that as we passed into the open air i heard the voice of a soldier singing a gay air of love and war presently he came in sight he saw me stood still for a moment looking curiously and then taking up the song again at the very line where he had broken off passed round an angle of the building and was gone to him i was no more than a moth fluttering in the candle to drop dead a moment later it was just on the verge of sunrise there was the grayish-blue light in the west the top of a long range of forest was sharply outlined against it and the timorous darkness was hurrying out of the zenith in the east a sad golden radiance was stealing up and driving back the mystery of the night and that weird loneliness of an arctic world the city was hardly waking as yet but straight silver columns of smoke rolled up out of many chimneys and the golden cross of the cathedral caught the first rays of the sun i was not interested in the city i had now as i thought done with men besides the four soldiers who had brought me out another squad surrounded me commanded by a young officer whom i recognized as captain lancy the rough roisterer who had insulted me at bigu's palace over a year ago i looked with a spirit absorbed upon the world about me and a hundred thoughts which had to do with a man's life passed through my mind but the young officer speaking sharply to me ordered me on and changed the current of my thoughts the coarseness of the man and his insulting words were hard to bear so that i was constrained to ask him if it were not customary to protect a condemned man from insult rather than expose him to it i said that i should be glad of my last moments in peace 
at that he asked gabo why i was unbound and my jailer answered that binding was for criminals who were to be hanged i could scarcely believe my ears i was to be shot not hanged i had a thrill of gratitude which i cannot describe it may seem a nice distinction but to me there were whole seas between the two modes of death i need not blush in advance for being shot my friends could bear that without humiliation but hanging would have always tainted their memory of me try as they would against it the gallows is ready and my orders were to see him hanged mr lancy said an order came at midnight that he should be shot was gabo's reply producing the order and handing it over the officer contemptuously tossed it back and now a little more courteous ordered me against the wall and i let my cloak fall to the ground i was placed where looking east i could see the eel of orleans on which was the summer-house of the signero Duvarney. gabo came to me and said monsieur you are a brave man then all at once breaking off he added in a low hurried voice tis not a long flight to heaven monsieur i could see his face twitching as he stood looking at me he hardly dared to turn round to his comrades lest his emotion should be seen but the officer roughly ordered him back gabo coolly drew out his watch and made a motion to me not to take off my cloak yet tis not the time by six minutes he said the gentleman is to be shot to the stroke oh his voice and manner were dogged the officer stepped forward threateningly but gabo said something angrily in an undertone and the other turned on his heel and began walking up and down this continued for a moment in which we all were very still and bitter cold the air cut like steel and then my heart gave a great leap for suddenly there stepped into the yard doltaire action seemed suspended in me but i know i listened with singular curiosity to the shrill creaking of his boots on the frosty earth and i noticed that the fur collar of the coat he wore was all white with the frozen moisture of his breath also that tiny icicles hung from his eyelashes he came down the yard slowly and presently paused and looked at gabo and the young officer his head laid a little to one side in a quizzical fashion his eyelids drooping what time was monsieur to be shot he asked of captain lancy at seven o'clock monsieur was the reply doltaire took out his watch it wants three minutes of seven said he what the devil means this business before the stroke of the hour waving a hand towards me we were waiting for the minute monsieur was the officer's reply a cynical cutting smile crossed doltaire's face a charitable trick upon my soul to fetch a gentleman from a warm dungeon and stand him against an icy wall on a deadly morning to cool his heels as he waits for his hour to die you'd skin your lion and shoot him afterwards voila all this time he held the watch in his hand you gabor he went on you are a man to obey orders eh gabo hesitated a moment as if waiting for lancy to speak and then said i was not in command when i was called upon i brought him forth excuses excuses you sweated to be rid of your charge 
Gabo's face lowered. Monsieur would have been in heaven by this if I hadn't stopped it. He broke out angrily. Doltaire turned sharply on Lancy. I thought as much, said he, and you would have let Gabor share your misdemeanor. Yet your father was a gentleman. If you had shot Monsieur before seven, you would have taken the dungeon he left. You must learn, my young provincial, that you are not to supersede France and the king. It is now seven o'clock. You will march your men back into quarters. Then, turning to me, he raised his cap. You will find your cloak more comfortable, Captain Moray, said he, and he motioned Gabo to hand it to me as he came forward. May I breakfast with you? he added courteously. He yawned a little. I have not risen so early in years, and I am chilled to the bone. Gabord insists that it is warm in your dungeon. I have a fancy to breakfast there. It will recall my year in the Bastille. He smiled in a quaint, elusive sort of fashion, and as I drew the cloak about me, I said through chattering teeth, for I had suffered with the brutal cold, I am glad to have the chance to offer breakfast. To me or anyone, he dryly suggested. Think. By now, had I not come, you might have been in a warmer world than this. Indeed, much warmer, he suddenly said, as he stooped picked up some snow in his bare hand, and clapped it to my cheek, rubbing it with force and swiftness. The cold had nipped it, and this was the way to draw out the frost. His solicitude at the moment was so natural and earnest that it was hard to think he was my enemy. When he had rubbed a while, he gave me his own handkerchief to dry my face, and so perfect was his courtesy, it was impossible to do otherwise than meet him as he meant and showed for the moment. He had stepped between me and death, and even an enemy who does that, no matter the motive, deserves something at your hands. Gabor, he said, as we stepped inside the citadel, we will breakfast at eight o'clock. Meanwhile, I have some duties with our officers here. Till we meet in your dining hall, then, monsieur, he added to me, and raised his cap. You must put up with frugal fare. I answered, bowing. If you but furnish locusts, he said gaily, I will bring the wild honey. What wonderful hives of bees they have at the Seigneur de Varny's, he continued musingly, as if with second thought. A beautiful manner, a place for pretty birds and honey bees. His eyelids drooped languidly, as was their way when he had said something a little carbolic, as this was to me because of its hateful suggestion. His words drew nothing from me, not even a look of understanding, and, again bowing, we went our ways. At the door of the dungeon Gabo held the torch up to my face. His own had a look which came as near to being gentle as was possible to him. Yet he was so ugly that it looked almost ludicrous in him. Pum, said he, a friendly court, more comforts. "'You think Monsieur Doltaire gets comforts, too?' asked I. He rubbed his cheek with a key. "'Oh!' mused he. "'Oh! Monsieur Doltaire rises not early for naught.'" End of chapter 11